0: We're uh, deep into a teaching series, um, I mean, I mean deep, I mean, I for a while I've been saying a few weeks now, but honestly it's been months. It's been six months since we started this teaching series. It's the longest teaching series I've ever done, and you're like, yeah, no kidding. But we're trying to, we're trying to find a place to land here. The series is called Emotionally Healthy. This series is really about becoming um, an emotionally healthy church made up of emotionally healthy people. And we said that one of the reasons that this is important is because and and that we should be talking about this in this setting is because Jesus, who we follow, was an emotional being and was emotionally healthy. So then it stands to reason that part of the process of becoming more like Jesus is to become more and more emotionally mature and emotionally healthy. So we started this series way back in March asking this question, what if all of our emotions are places to meet with God? What if God is already there waiting for us? So we've covered a bunch of challenging topics so far in this series, and I really feel like, I feel like we're beginning to find a place to wrap it up, uh, kind of a place to, looking for a landing strip, so we're getting close. My prayer for all of us in this series is for us as individuals, for us as couples, for us as households, for us as a church, is that God would bring us to a place of emotional maturity and emotional health as we follow Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for each person that's here that's Uh, been so intentional about carving out some time to be together uh, with other believers and to come to gather around your word. Pray that your word would be clearly spoken today, that our hearts would be open, our minds would be clear of distraction, and uh, just invite you uh, to meet with us today, and we invite your presence into our experience together this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Some people wake up happy. Oh, okay. (laughs) I know, I feel the same way about those people. Some people wake up sad. And by that, I mean um, some of us by nature are happy. Like some of you always wake up on, on the right side of the bed somehow. Others of you are not so lucky. Others of you, the default setting is sad. It's, it's uptight, it's, it's nervous, it's stressed, it's, it's down, it's unhappy, it's anxious, it's depressed. It's kind of your bent. So we've been uh, talking about emotional health now for six months and it, it wouldn't be intellectually honest of us in this series uh, to, if we wrapped it up without talking about anxiety and depression. So we're gonna take the next couple weeks or the next couple times I'm at the podium and we're gonna tackle this topic of anxiety and depression. So just as a disclaimer, I'm not a doctor, okay? You know that. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a counselor. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm none of that. I'm a follower of Jesus. I've been leading in the church in a pastoral role for uh, nearly 30 years. I've had countless hours of conversations with people who struggle or have struggled with anxiety and depression. And so I've tried to learn from people who have personal experience, either working through it themselves or guiding others through it. So basically what I'm doing right now in this moment is I'm trying to lower the bar of your expectations, okay? So uh, so you don't leave here thinking, well, that was a total waste of time. Yeah, he's supposed to be an expert on this. He doesn't know anything. I'm just telling you right now, I don't know anything. But I hope that this time together is, is not a waste. I believe it can be helpful. And uh, I think anytime we go to the God's word with open minds and hearts, that's exactly what it can be. I'm not gonna offer you a formula this morning. I'm not gonna offer you a magic cure-all And it's not because I'm holding out on you, it's because it doesn't exist. So let's be honest about that from the very beginning. So to start things off, first things first, uh, please know when we're talking about um, anxiety and depression, we often link them together, but we're not talking about the same thing. And the other thing you need to know is, if this is your story, you are not alone. You're not alone in this. Have you ever felt like you were the only one on the planet dealing with anxiety and depression? I mean, you don't put your hands up because I know that just made you anxious, but. Uh, have you ever felt like you're the only one? Oh, maybe not on the planet, okay? But hey, we're churchy people, so you've, uh, you've probably felt like you're the only one in the church struggling with anxiety or depression. Because there's a stigma, right? Like Christians are supposed to be happy. Like uh, Christians are supposed to be just above the circumstances all the time. So you're, the, the question then becomes, well, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with my faith? What's wrong with my relationship with God? And you feel guilt and you feel shame. Maybe, you've, or maybe you're, in your church experience, you've been made to feel guilty and shameful. And you kind of feel like the odd man out, and you're like, I always thought I was the only one in the church. Truth be told, nothing is further from the truth. So there's staggering numbers of modern Americans who are up against anxiety and depression. So let me just give you some, uh, an overview of the most recent numbers. As of 2017, this is according to an analysis by National Center for Health Statistics, 13% of the US population over the age of 12 have taken antidepressant medication in the last month. That's one in eight. So, so, and it, don't, you, don't, don't think that you're in the church so that doesn't, like, not in this setting. Yeah, in this setting. One in eight. Some of you in this room are over 60. I'm just kind of looking at the curtain back there right now, and I'm not making any eye contact. And uh, 19% of adults over 60, 19%, that's really close to one out of five, of adults over 60 have taken antidepressant medication in the last month. The number of people using antidepressants rose 64% over a 15-year period from 1999 to 2014 when that most most recent study was done. Women are twice as likely to take antidepressant medication, probably because they're more in touch with their feelings. Whites are three times as likely to take antidepressants as any other ethnic group. And not only are more people taking antidepressants, but they're staying on them longer than ever before. 68% of people who take antidepressants have been on them more than two years. A quarter of people who take them report using them for 10 years or more. Here's a headline I read just a couple days ago. Global depression drug market poised to surge to $17 billion by the end of 2020. I don't know if that's coincidence that it's also the end of another presidential election cycle uh, or if there's any connection or not that's my own conclusion okay Uh, but holy cow it's like an epidemic and don't think for a minute that followers of Jesus are immune the Bible tells the raw uncut story of prophets and poets and kings and mothers and fathers and the people we consider heroes of our faith and even our Messiah who came up against anxiety and depression. So I want to give you a few examples to get us started this morning. I think, first of all, of Job. Now, if you're new to the Bible, I know you thought it was Job and you're thinking I'm mispronouncing it. But the, the man's name was Job. Uh, the scripture says Job was blessed by God. He walks with God. And on top of that, he's well off. There's no, th- th- he's not blessed by God because he's well off or he's not well off because he's blessed by God. Two different things, okay? Like, of course he's blessed by God. Look at the stuff he has. Those are two different, that one doesn't have anything to do with the other. But he's blessed by God. He walks with God. He's well off. He has a great family. He has a great marriage. He has great kids. The whole It's all going on for Job. And one day tragedy strikes. Mur- uh, murderers take away his family. Robbers take away his business and his faith, or his business and his money and his wealth. And he's left with nothing. Uh, well, not nothing. Uh, he, he still has his wife. And she becomes bitter real fast. And she's no help at all. And on top of all that, his faith is under attack. And here's what he says. He says these famous words. Naked, you've heard this probably. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I'll depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord's taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In other versions, it's blessed be the name of the Lord. And he's famous for that line, and I love that line. The problem is, that's in chapter one of his story. There are 42 chapters in Job. The other 41 don't sound like that. By the end, he's writing really depressing poetry. He writes this in verse in chapter 30. He says, "Night pierces my bones, my gnawing pains never rest. In His great power, God becomes like clothing to me; He binds me like the neck of my garment. He throws me into the mud, and I'm reduced to dust and ashes." You ever feel like Job? <laughs> Tragedy strikes, death, loss, unemployment, life just punches you in the gut. And at first, you say all the right things, and you put on a brave face, and you know, "Lord gave, Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Lord is to be praised." And time wears you down. And a month later, six months later, a year later, years later, the marriage is not getting better, you're not getting pregnant, the job offers aren't coming, you're still single, there aren't any prospects, this, that, the other thing, time wears you down and you start to doubt and you start to blame God and you start to question and you get angry, why me? You are not alone. I think of Elijah the prophet in 1 Kings uh, chapter 19. Elijah is fresh off of victory on Mount Carmel. If you aren't familiar with that story, it's a showdown that if you grew up going to Sunday school, you definitely saw the flannel graph version of that and it was pretty awesome. But it's a showdown where God, the creator, Yahweh, he shames the 450 prophets of Baal. Baal was one of the many gods of the Canaanites. He was the weather God. So they believed that he was the God who uh, controlled the rain and the wind and the thunder and the lightning and all that. And at this point in Israel's story, most of Israel has turned their back from their creation god to worship other gods there's this whole showdown on mount carmel and it's a spectacle it's high drama if you want to read about it, it's in first kings chapter 18 and elijah the lord's prophet comes out on the winning side and he's on a spiritual high and you could almost predict that right because you're like well that's how these stories go i've seen those movies the spiritual high though didn't last long because almost immediately after the, the thing on mount carmel the queen jezebel uh, threatens Elijah's life. There's a bounty on his head, so he runs from Mount Carmel, and he runs all the way across the Jezreel Valley. And that's where we pick up the story in the very next chapter in 1 Kings 19, verse 1. It says, Ahab, who was the king, told Jezebel, his wife, everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them, meaning the dead prophets, the men that Elijah had just killed, verse 3. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors, who were dead, right? Because ancestors are dead. And he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Just to so are clear, he says, God, kill me now. I, I'm, not a, I, I'm not a doctor or a, a psychologist, or I, I, but for what it's worth, here's my diagnosis, okay? Elijah was afraid. He was scared, he was stressed out, he was uh, anxious, says, I've had enough, so he's tired, he's depressed, he's paranoid, he says, take my life, God, let's end this now, he's suicidal, and he wants to die. Don't answer this out loud, but have you ever felt like Elijah? High highs and low lows? If that's been a part of your experience, you're in good company, Elijah was one of the greatest prophets in the story of Israel. So I think of Job, and I think of Elijah, and I think of David. David's one of my favorite examples. Uh, He's all, because he's all over the place. He's kind of unpredictable. In the middle of the Bible, there's a book called Psalms, which is 150 poems that were put to music for worship in the temple and in community life. And the Psalms are overflowing with every emotion known to humans. The good, the bad, the ugly, the anger, the fear, It's all all through there, rage and bitterness and hate and envy and more fear and love and joy and gratitude and peace and anxiety and some more fear and some trust. It's all in the pages of the Psalms. So I think the stoic denial of our emotions, the fake happy, clappy, hey, how are you today? I'm good, how are you? Oh, it's all good, God is good all the time, amen, brother. That kind of interaction, I know I slide into that voice when I do that for some reason, but (laughs) that kind of interaction it's common in North American church culture, but that kind of denial of emotions, denial of what's really going on is an alien attitude to the authors of the books of the Bible. The Psalms are bare bones honesty. About two thirds of the Psalms were written by David, about 100 of them. David was a shepherd who became a warrior, who became the second king of Israel, and emotionally he is up and down. He is a, he's a creative. He's a poet, he's a musician, um, so if you know anybody like that, it makes perfect sense. Here are a few examples of David's poetry, Psalm 6. Psalm 6, we're not very deep into this, so if you're reading a psalm a day, you're in week one. Psalm 6, have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long? Verse 5, among the dead no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? I'm worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and I drench my couch with tears. Psalm 13. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. Psalm 18. The cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. Oh, but on top of that, he writes things like this. Psalm 21, the king, speaking of himself, rejoices in your strength, Lord. How great is his joy in the victories you give. Psalm 33, Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It's fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him with the ten-stringed lyre, which is a precursor to the electric guitar. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. Do you ever feel like David is just running the pendulum back and forth all the way to one side to the other? That's how melancholy works, actually. And if you can identify with this, you are not alone. Job, Elijah, David. Oh, one more song before I move on. Not all the songs were written by uh, David. A bunch were written by the sons of Korah, who were a group of songwriters and musicians who, who worked for the priests. So they worked at writing songs and creating music, filling the temple with poetry and music and melody. So they were like the Chris Tomlins and Joel Houstons of ancient Israel's worship scene. Okay, so that's who they were. So they would have been blasted all over Caleb, if you know what I mean. So one of the One of the Psalms written by the sons of Korah was Psalm 88. It's written by a man named He-Man. He was really popular on Saturday mornings when I was a kid, but that's another whole story. (laughs) So I'm pretty sure I'm not pronouncing this man's name right, but hey, we're in uh, America, so we're just going to call him He-Man. So that's what we're going with, okay? I don't my Hebrew isn't that strong. So He-Man wrote, uh, (laughs) it's hard to say with a straight face, wrote uh, Psalm 88. Listen, uh, this sounds to me more like venting and screaming at God, but but listen to his words. They're actually kind of chilling. Verse one, Lord, you're the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. So this is his cry. Verse three, I'm overwhelmed with troubles. My life draws near to death. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like one without strength. I'm set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You've put me in the lowest pit and the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You've overwhelmed me with all your waves. You've taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I'm confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day, and I spread out my hands to you. Verse 14, why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I've suffered and been close to death. I've borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They've completely engulfed me. You've taken my friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. That's in the Bible. Darkness is my closest friend. I think this is one of the darkest, most disturbing prayers known to man. Uh, at least David usually ends on an up note. His songs of, of lament, you know, they end up on a, on a high note most of the time. You know, it's like, I'm miserable, I'm doubting, I'm questioning God, but I will hope in you, you know. But not Heman, his, his closing line is, darkness is my closest friend, period, the end, drops a mic, walks off the stage. Here's what we need to understand. Psalm 88 was, was a worship song. It was used when the people came together to worship. Can you imagine singing the words of Psalm 88 in church? Can you imagine this set to the tune of My Lighthouse? You know? Darkness is my closest friend. I don't know how to clap because this song confuses me. You have destroyed me. It's all your fault. I don't know, God, but I don't know if I believe in you right now. You know, it's like, amen. Yeah, whoo play that again let's play another chorus of that one we're so unfamiliar with lament because about a quarter of the psalms are lament either individual lament or communal lament and if we believe that all scripture is God breathed and we do then Psalm 88 and others like it are God-breathed as well, meaning God the Holy Spirit breathed out Psalm 88 through Heman's suffering and his personality and his poetry and his language. He breathed it out onto the pages of the Bible for millions of people down through history and all over the world and every culture to pray and worship God like that. So what's that to do with us? What does it mean for us? Well, first of all, it means that God is not scared of honesty in prayer, first of all. God is not scared of that. God already knows what's in you. Hebrews 4 says that in all of creation, nothing's hidden from God's sight, but all things are laid bare and exposed in God's eyes. So you can't hide one scrap of your life from him anyway. He sees it all. But there's something in humans, it goes all the way back to the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, of uh, this hiding from God thing. I mean, hiding from God with some fig leaves. I mean, how stupid is that? And we laugh at them, but we think we can hide from God. We think we can fake a good attitude with God, and that's dumb. It's unhealthy. God sees what's going on in the depths of our souls. He knows every thought in our head and every feeling in our heart. Good or bad or evil doesn't matter. He sees it. Prayer is an opportunity for you to vent, for you to get what's keeping you up at night off of your chest, to tell God what you think and to actually really engage with God, to speak with honesty, to speak normal, real language from your gut, You can ask God to change you, to heal you, to fix you, to change how you think, to change how you feel. But the bottom line is talk it out with your heavenly father. Get it out there. Because God is there. And God hears that. Sometimes he rebukes in the moment. Sometimes he comforts. Always he loves and he interacts and he engages. And God is not scared of honesty in your praying. Job, Elijah, David the sons of Korah, the list goes on in the scriptures, and we see in them the need to lean, in, to lean hard into God. You are not alone. And then we fast forward and we read about the story of Jesus and we read the, the gospel accounts. The prophet Isaiah called him, this coming Messiah, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief story in John 11, we referred to it a few weeks ago when we were talking about embracing grief and loss. And in John 11, there's a story where Jesus, one of Jesus' closest friends, Lazarus, dies. He's kind of out of the blue. It seems like it was unexpected. He had a brief illness and then he died. And the text says in verse 33, he says, When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus, with a big smile on his face, don't worry about this, I got this. Like he's visiting his heavenly father in heaven right now, he's having a little party, he's gonna be short-lived because he's coming back, because I'm gonna, that's not what he, that's not how it happened at all. He didn't even offer any platitudes, well, at least he's not suffering. It simply says, Jesus wept. The phrase that's used in verse 33 that says Jesus was deeply moved in spirit can be translated torn up inside. And the word wept is a vivid picture as well. It's a word picture. It describes crying silently. So picture Jesus making his way to Lazarus' tomb with Lazarus' friends and family, tears running down his face in empathy with his friend's grief. Luke 22, this is the night that Jesus was betrayed. Verse 39 says, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. That, that's really interesting. That's another sermon altogether. This wasn't the first time he'd gone to the Mount of Olives to pray. He says, he went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. And on reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you'll not fall into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone's throat from them, knelt down and prayed. And he says, Father, if you're willing to take this cup from me, what's the cup? The cup is the cross. It's, the, it's that pending torture and beating and ultimately death on a cross. He says, yet not my will, yours be done. We always quote the second half, right? God, not my will, but yours be done. And isn't that great? I mean, well done. If that's where you're at, way to go. I'm happy that you got there. But Jesus in the first half of the prayer says, God, I don't want to go to the cross. Father, please take this from me. If you say no, if you say no, it's okay. Not my will. But can, can we just skip this? Look what happens. There's 43. It says an angel from heaven appeared to him, and strengthened him. After the angel appeared and strengthened him, it says, "Being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground." There's actually a, a medical term for that that I don't know how to pronounce, but uh, I keep looking up stuff that I don't know how to say. Uh, hematidrosis is something or something like that, but it's where you actually bleed through your pores. I looked it up. It's gross. Uh, This is what the description of that says. It's a a condition in which capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands rupture, causing them to exude blood, occurring under conditions of extreme physical or emotional stress. Severe mental anxiety activates the sympathetic nervous system to invoke such a response as to cause hemorrhaging of the vessels supplying the sweat glands. You got the picture? I thought about putting a picture on the screen but decided against it because it's disgusting. But Jesus is no stranger to emotional pain, he wept, he knows. He knows what depression feels like, he's deeply moved, he's torn up inside. He knows what anxiety feels like, he's bleeding through his pores. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is that God, our Heavenly Father, has come in the person of Jesus to save you and me. Keep in mind, most of us have a, a, I would say most of us need a deeper, wider, panoramic view of salvation because the one that we have, the one that we tend to operate from in 21st century North American, evangelical, if you want to use that word, church, it's truncated. It's way too small. Jesus came to save you yes, out of hell and into heaven, absolutely, but I think Jesus wants more for you than a change of address when you die. Would you agree with that? Jesus came to save you, to save you out of anxiety and into peace out of depression and into joy, out of death as a whole, out of hell on earth, and into life in his kingdom, in the here and now, and in the, ever, and in the life after. One of the biblical authors calls it, he, calls, he says he's called us to life that is truly life. So not only does Jesus stand in solidarity with us, God came to be with us, and absolutely we are not alone, and that might make us feel better for a little while, right? At least while we're in church, right? But it doesn't really help you tomorrow. So there's more to it. Jesus rose from the dead. He can save you and heal you. Not only save you from hell, but save you from hell on earth. Not only save you in the future, but save you in the here and now. I'm one who believes Jesus can heal you. I love this verse in Matthew 14. It's a pretty important passage in the in the account of Jesus' ministry. It's where we read about the death of John the Baptist, which was a monumental occasion in Jesus' life. It's where Jesus feeds the 5,000, and it's where he walks on waters. So it's a pretty full chapter. And then after all that, at the very end of the chapter, the last paragraph says this in verse 34 of Matthew 14. It says, when they crossed over, they land at Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country, and people brought all their sick to him, and they begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. Here's the thing. Jesus is here. After he'd risen from the dead and before he ascended to the Father, he promised that the Holy Spirit would come and the the Holy Spirit would be his presence on earth. And 50 days later, that's exactly what happened. And his Holy Spirit is right now on the move and Jesus can heal you. Matthew says all who touched him were healed. So please listen, please listen, listen. The word healing is a slippery word in this discussion. I understand that. When, we get talk, when we're talking about anxiety and depression, healing can mean different things to, to it, depending on who's listening. So when I say, Jesus, can he heal you? Because we, we want to think that Jesus can heal us from our anxiety and depression. We tend to think, oh, yeah, that's great. So healing, like somebody's going to have a prayer for me, and like, and, or maybe I'll pray on my own behalf, and like, it's like, bam, God's going to zap me with the healing Jesus lightning bolt, and it's all, I'm going to be healed from anxiety, and you're going to be healed from depression, and you're going to be happy like all the time. You're going to be one of those annoying happy people. That's not what I mean, so stay with me, okay? Because I have tons of questions on this topic. I've already proven I'm not very qualified to speak on this, but I'm pretty sure... Uh, by doing life and talking with some people who've experienced this, who've lived it, who maybe know more about anxiety and depression than I do because it's real life. Anyway, my question that I take out from all that is, do we need healing from anxiety and depression? Or do we need healing from something else? Something deeper, something that's under the surface? I wanna read uh, some verses from Psalm 42. Psalm 42 is a bare-knuckle, straight-up prayer for healing from, from anxiety and depression. We don't know much of anything about the backstory or, or the author, but the opening line, the heading, you know, in the, in the psalms, some of the psalms have these headings, it tells about who's writing it, what it's for, whatever. This says, for the, for the director of music, a maskil of the sons of Korah. Now, we've learned who the sons of Korah are. Um, now, a maskil is a Hebrew word that means that this psalm is for teaching. Meaning that you're about to read poetry, but you're also about to read theology. So Psalm 42 is there not simply to vent, but Psalm 40 there is to teach us how to think, to teach us how to feel, to teach us how to navigate anxiety and depression on a path that leads towards healing. So let's listen to this poetry and this theology. Verse 1. As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? So keep in mind the psalmist lives in a desert region, right? We don't really get the analogy necessarily of thirsty for water. The psalmist is starving for one taste of God, one mouthful of God's joy. Verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night. While people say to me all day long, where's your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. So he remembers the past. I wasn't always miserable. It wasn't always like this, down and unhappy and stressed out and anxious. There was a time when I was at peace. There was a time when I was happy. And he asked this probing, brilliant question in verse five. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? hope in God for yet I will yet praise him my savior my God the psalmist question is the question why why are you in the psalmist language downcast depressed unhappy tired Why are you disquieted, stressed out, uptight, nervous, anxious, torn up inside, tossing, turning, worrying about the future, about the present? Why? Or what is causing the anxiety and the depression in your life? What deep down in your soul is robbing you of joy, robbing you of peace, robbing you of the life God intended you to live? What is deep down under the surface and it's leaking out as anxiety as, or stress or it's leaking out as depression, you're down and you're miserable and you're tired, what's behind the anxiety and depression? What's causing that? I would argue that is the question. There are a couple of different ways to talk and to think about anxiety and depression and uh, here's the thing it's not really an exact science it's a, and it's a bit controversial but one way is to think about anxiety and depression as a disease to think that there's a chemical imbalance in your brain it's like a mental condition and I'm really not qualified to speak to that so I'm not going to but another way to think about anxiety and depression is a symptom like something's wrong for sure Maybe with your body, maybe with your soul, maybe with your mind, your thought life, your thought patterns. Maybe in your marriage, maybe in how you treat your husband or your wife, maybe in your relationship with your children, your son, your daughter, or maybe with your father or your mother. Maybe it's about something in your past, about trauma, about neglect, about uh, abuse, or, or about just a pattern there. Maybe it's something in your present. Maybe it's about how you take care of your body or don't take care of your body. Maybe it's something in your work schedule, maybe in the demands on your life, maybe in the way that you manage your time. I don't know, a billion different things for a billion different people. But basically, something's wrong inside, something deep in our souls. Something is off kilter, something is not right, something is not in sync with what God intended for you. Something is not quite right, and it's leaking out into your life, and the result is stress and anxiety and depression. So the real issue is, under the surface. What's under the surface? There's something causing it in your life. Whatever's behind the emotions, whatever's behind the fear, whatever is messing with your nerves. Whatever it is that's making you anxious or causing you to panic or causing you to lose sleep or causing you to be stuck, just completely unable to move forward. For some people it's such a big deal that it becomes part of their identity you know what I'm talking about? They kind of like to brag about how anxious they are and about how all these external things make them nervous and make them panic and like to make sure you know that about them. And they like to excuse their inaction and their unwillingness to take action and to pursue change in their life and in their relationships and in their job and in their family and in their finances because they're just so anxious about it and they're so nervous about what might happen. And, and it's so unhealthy that it's become their identity. And for some people, present company excluded, of course. But you know some people like this and for, in some cases, it's, it's gotten so to a point of unhealth that it's how they get attention, it's, how, it's the only place I know to go for empathy. It's the only place I know to go for some positive reinforcement and some encouragement. Something is so broken, they lean into their identity as someone who is so uh, just crippled by anxiety because it's reminding people about this thing about themselves that it generates all this support and encouragement and love from other people. And can I just say something just so I'm, I'm about, as it relates to medicating your anxiety, just so I'm clear on this, because uh, let's not ignore the elephant in the room. I'm not, I'm not saying don't take medication for anxiety and depression. I'm not going to say that at all. But what I'm saying is be sure that in addition to dealing with the symptoms of your depression or your anxiety, that you're also addressing what's driving it. You're also exploring what's lying beneath the surface, what's under the surface causing the symptoms that you see above the surface, right? Here's what I mean by that, let me give you an example, and my kids always love it when I use them as examples, but they're adults now, they can handle it. A few years ago, um, our son Ben uh, broke his wrist. Uh, He was playing hockey uh, in that time in his life, and he broke his wrist, and they have nothing to do with each other. You can ask him about the story. Um, Anyway, I was the first, that's that's all the details I'm going to give. I was the, he was like what, 13 or 14, yeah. I was the first person to come to him after this happened. And so when I saw the injury, and again, remember I took zero, like any, no pre-med courses, no biology, no physiology, didn't offer that in seminary. And so anything related to the human body I did not study. But when I saw the injury, it was very obvious that he had broken his wrist. Uh, I mean, you're not supposed to have two elbows. Your arm should not be able to bend there in that direction. So, so, uh, so what I did, because I'm a good parent, and I respond well under pressure, I took him inside, I went to our medicine cabinet, and I gave him a bunch, a bunch of ibuprofen. Just, I mean, pretty much everything that was left. I'm like, here, take all this, because I think this is really serious. <laughs> it's not true, Okay. <laughs> I gave him the appropriate dosage of ibuprofen <laughs> because he was in pain. Ibuprofen's a painkiller. His symptom was severe pain in my arm. So naturally, I gave him something to address his pain, and everything was good after that. It was pretty much it. And eventually, the pain went away, and things are good. That's ridiculous. That's not what happened. We immobilized the arm, we got some ice on it, we got him to the hospital. He had surgery the next day. They inserted a pin, they put him in a cast, they put him in a sling. Second surgery, a week later, put two pins in, another time in a cast and a sling. Because here's why: because when you break a bone, it hurts, right? Right? I mean, I've never broken a bone, but uh, apparently, Ben tells me it hurts. And you can take all the pain medication you want, I mean, within reason, but that's not going to heal your broken bone, is it? It helps with the pain, but if you want that bone to heal properly, if you want full functionality on the other side of your injury, you gotta go to a doctor, you gotta get some x-rays, you might have to have surgery because they might need to go under the surface to repair what's been broken, and then out of that, and out of that process that follows comes healing. I would argue that the same thing is true with anxiety and depression. If you want healing, Simply treating the symptoms is not enough. And I'm not anti-antidepressants. Don't misunderstand me and freak out and don't go home and like throw all your pills away. Pastor Todd said, post a video on Instagram, you're flushing your meds. don't do that. If you do, don't tag me in it. My point is, my point is we have to engage in the process long enough and go deep enough to be able to ask the right questions. And the first right question is what is causing my pain? If you want to get better, you might have to do some surgery. You might have to go into the recesses of your soul to figure out what's broken deep inside. In your mind, in your heart, in your life, in your past, in your relationships, in your marriage, in your body. What is broken deep inside of you, you have to engage in a process and pray for healing. The beauty of the gospel of Jesus, please listen. The beauty of the gospel of Jesus is that Jesus finds us in the broken places. Jesus finds you in the broken places and that's where he does some of his greatest work. Religion says, get your act together, fix your broken stuff, and then come back to God all nice and shiny. The gospel of Jesus says, no, God actually comes in your direction and he meets you right where you are, right where you are a disaster, right where there is shame, right where there's guilt, right where you're hiding from the world. And Jesus finds you there and in that place, he does some of his best work. There's a line in three of the four gospel accounts where Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So maybe you're here today and you're not the healthy one. Oh, if you're the healthy one you're like oh dude thanks that was great i just face- surf facebook the whole time because none of this applies to me well congratulations thank you for your patience but if you're, you're here today and you're like i'm i'm not the healthy one i'm the sick that jesus was talking about so i just want you to know there is a physician and his name is jesus And he wants to meet you in your broken place or in your broken places and he wants to work in your life and he wants to heal you. And it's very unlikely that it's a lightning bolt moment, much more likely that it's a process he wants to lead you through. We're not done with this topic, but I'm done for this morning. To wrap this up, though, here, I, don't, I like to give you something practical, um, but I'm not gonna do that today. <laughs> I'm not gonna reduce this topic to three easy steps. So for today to end, I simply wanna pray. Uh, I just have this, um, I wanna pray, and then I wanna invite all of you to pray. I have this crazy belief that when God's people pray, when we gather, God's spirit moves and God does miraculous stuff. Are you with me on that? I believe when we come together to pray, um, God meets us in that. It may just mark the beginning of a process in you. It may get you unstuck from wherever you've been stuck. So we're gonna come together to pray today, and without ever going into any details, without having to tell your story, without having to spill any of that, you're not gonna say a thing. I believe that as we come together to pray, that this moment today could be a turning point for some of us. So this is a different kind of message for me. It's a difficult topic, and I'm, it's pushing me beyond where I'm comfortable, so, um, so, and a lot of these topics have. So uh, I'm gonna ask you, I'm just going out on a limb here, and I'm gonna ask you to do something that might be uncomfortable for you. And this is a risk, because we like to make this as comfortable and non-weird as possible. This might get weird. No, no, I promise you it's not gonna be weird. But here's what I'd love for us to do. I'd love for all of us to come around all of us in prayer today. Here's how I'd like to do that. I'm gonna give you some instructions. Don't anybody move yet. You're like, oh, move? Yeah, right. So I'm gonna give you some instructions, so stay right there until I give you the go ahead. But those those of you standing on the sides, or sitting on the sides, would stand and move out to the outside of your section in a minute. Don't move yet. And those of you in the center section, if you're near the back, you move to the back. If you're near the front, move to the front. And everybody's facing the inside, and we're kind of making a big circle. Can you see the picture? You got it? Okay, good. Uh, Now, if this already is making you really uncomfortable, I'm going to give you an out, okay? And this isn't meant with any kind of judgment. I just want to give you an out. While everyone's moving around and getting into their circle, it's going to be chaotic for like 14 seconds, it would be perfectly fine for you to slip right through the little passageway there in the half wall back there and just no one's going to ask any questions no one's going to come tap you on the shoulder is everything okay no we're just going to leave you alone and you can you can hang out there in the lobby until the band comes back to the stage and and that's perfectly fine okay so I want to give you an out there Um, but I'd like for everybody else to just get in a circle and then we're going to pray together silently for one another so without any more instructions let's play some music and let's get in a circle here we go Wow, nicely done. You follow instructions so well. Earlier today I was talking with the guys in the booth and I had a plan B for this moment because I wanted to make sure we had enough people to make a circle. This is an impressive circle. This is cool. Thank you for rolling with this. Uh, So, uh, here's what we're going to do. First of all, you don't know the details about the person standing next to you. Perhaps you're with a spouse. You could, you could, if you wanted to even go one person beyond your spouse, you're like, yeah, this is too familiar. Here, listen, you don't know who's really struggling with anxiety or depression. You don't know about that thing in their life that's broken. You don't know about that thing that's robbing them of joy, robbing them of peace, robbing them of the life God intended for them. Maybe it's an addiction, maybe it's bitterness, maybe it's a hurt, maybe it's abuse. I don't have any idea, neither do you. So right now, let's come together as a church and let's pray for one another. So right where you are, let's take these next few moments to pray for the person on your left and the person on your right, so that everyone in this room is prayed for today. We don't need to know what's going on with them. We don't need details. We're just gonna pray for God to do a work in each of us, to for God to bring healing where there's hurt, where there's brokenness for God to bring peace where there's anxiety, for God to bring joy and purpose and meaning where there's depression, for God to bring freedom where there's bondage. And we aren't gonna ask any questions, we aren't gonna counsel, there's no interrogation, we're just gonna pray together for a couple of minutes we're gonna pray for one another. So now right where you are in the silence of your heart, in communion with the Holy Spirit, let's pray. Father thank you that there are times in our lives as individuals and as a church that you give us a moment in time thank you for this moment may this be a time of of healing maybe it's a process that's starting maybe it's a a moment to get unstuck engage with what you're doing in our lives Whatever it is for the people gathered in this circle, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would minister healing. May we be agents of healing in the lives of the people around us. We thank you that you are a Messiah who was acquainted with grief. You identify and God, we're grateful for that. I pray for each person in this room this morning that you would just minister your peace and joy to their hearts and deep within their souls. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. You can go back to your seat if you can figure out where you were.
1: I have wrestled and I have trembled towards surrender Chased my heart adrift and drifted home again Plundered blessing till I've been desperate to find redemption But every time I turn around, you're still
2: Just you.